Hello, and welcome to Employment Law Legends, Episode 4, The Burdens of Proof, McDonnell Douglas Corporation versus Green. My name is Paul Rinnan. I am an employment and labor law attorney with the law firm of Ogletree Deacons in Houston, Texas. Who holds the burden of proof in a lawsuit is something of a dry subject, but make no mistake about it, the burden of proof is the most important part of a case. It determines who has to produce evidence, how much evidence they need to produce, and it makes or breaks success at trial. As we saw last episode when we studied Griggs versus Duke Power Company, plaintiffs really struggle to meet their burden to prove discriminatory intent in employment cases. No employer ever comes out and says they fired someone because of their race or other protected characteristic. The Griggs plaintiffs came up with one standard to prove discrimination. They said, forget about intent. Instead, use statistics to show that a policy screens out minorities and has no business justification. But obviously, this theory doesn't work in every case. Not even most cases. So what do you do for the vast majority of lawsuits where all you have to go on is circumstantial evidence? What do you do where you have a lot of suspicious evidence that an employment decision was discriminatory, but not a smoking gun? The case we will study today, McDonnell Douglas Corporation v. Green, attempts to answer this question. If the Griggs case was a blockbuster movie, then this one would be its more controversial and explosive sequel. It was the second Title VII case to be granted review by the United States Supreme Court, and it created a famous three-part burden-shifting framework for proving discrimination with circumstantial evidence. The McDonnell-Douglas burden-shifting framework is one of the most cited standards of proof of the modern era. According to Westlaw, a widely used legal search engine, the case has been cited by courts over 60,800 times. I probably refer to the case once a week or more in my private practice. Both simple and sphinx-like, pilloried and praised, attorneys have called it Employment Law's Pledge of Allegiance. Everyone has to use it, and the framework gets compared to ritualized dances like the Renaissance-era Allemande or the stately minuet. But the case did more than establish the famous proof structure for disparate treatment claims. It also mapped out how far nonviolent civil rights action could go before losing protection from Title VII. The case began in St. Louis, the well-known Midwestern city sitting on the banks of the Mississippi River in Missouri. Founded by fur traders in 1764, St. Louis has always been known as a gateway to the West. The famous explorers Lewis and Clark began their expedition there in 1804 to find a path to the Pacific Ocean. The city soon became an industrial hub with packing and manufacturing houses, huge markets for unskilled labor, and smoke-filled jazz and piano halls. But there was also a darker side to the city. Langston Hughes, a famous African-American poet, once described St. Louis as an old city of riverboats and ragtime, jockeys and blues, diamond rings and glamorous women, Josephine Baker and T.S. Eliot, Old Man River and Old Jim Crow, and a son that do move. He saw St. Louis as both dynamic and defined by its racial contradictions. African Americans began living in St. Louis at its founding, coming with French and Spanish settlers, both slave and free. On March the 6th, 1857, in perhaps the worst Supreme Court case of all time, Dred Scott v. Sanford, the Supreme Court announced from the old St. Louis courthouse that African Americans were never intended to be citizens of the United States. 
The Civil War followed three years later, and with it a failed reconstruction. Segregation and Jim Crow laws remained monolithic until the civil rights movement in the mid-20th century. The civil rights movement is at the center of our case today. As we learned last time, the civil rights movement was defined by the legal efforts of the NAACP's Legal Defense Fund, or the LDF, and its litigation strategy to end racial discrimination through legal channels. But the civil rights movement also had a second track. This track was not guided by lawyers, but by social activists and ministers, like Martin Luther King Jr. These leaders de-emphasized sometimes slow and inconsistent legal maneuvering for direct action. Protests were aimed at confronting segregation head-on through nonviolent civil disobedience such as sit-ins, riding segregated buses, and picketing segregated businesses. Percy Green, the plaintiff at the center of the McDonald case, would become a central figure in St. Louis's civil rights movement in the 1960s. Arrested over a hundred times during his life, he would lead numerous civil disobedience campaigns for decades to come. However, his turn to civil rights work was not immediate. As Professor David Oppenheimer recounts from his interviews with Percy Green in the book Employment Discrimination Stories, Green was born in St. Louis in 1935. He was raised in a segregated neighborhood on the city's south side called Compton Hill, and he graduated high school in 1954. He then worked as a page at Washington University's medical clinic and studied radio and television repair. In 1956, he was hired by McDonnell Aircraft Corporation as a radio and electric mechanic. Now, this was a good opportunity for Percy Green. McDonnell Aircraft, soon to become McDonnell Douglas Corporation after a merger, was a major aerospace manufacturing company which produced military and commercial jets as well as spacecraft products for NASA. It had over 30,000 employees mostly in production facilities centered in St. Louis. Two years into his employment with McDonnell, Green left the company briefly when he was drafted into the United States Army and served for two years before returning to the company in 1960. His Army service profoundly changed him. President Truman had earlier integrated the armed forces, and this integrated environment made it very difficult to return and live in the segregated conditions of St. Louis. In the book Ain't But a Place, Percy Green recounts that he was finally brought into the civil rights movement in 1962. He began working at an assembly line at McDonald beside an Italian co-worker named Joe Vachetti. Vachetti was a beatnik poet who liked to walk Gaslight Square, and one day he convinced Green to attend a meeting at a civil rights organization called the Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE for short. Formed in Chicago in 1942, CORE was involved in sending freedom riders throughout Virginia, North Carolina, and other states, some of which had been viciously attacked in 1961 in Birmingham, Alabama, and other places. CORE struck Percy Green as an organization of professionals. He began attending meetings, becoming more involved in picketing campaigns to open more jobs for African Americans. On August the 28th, 1963, two days after Martin Luther King Jr. made his famous I Have a Dream speech in Washington, St. Louis's CORE members began a famous protest against Jefferson Bank and Trust Company, demanding that the bank hire more African Americans. It had hired only two. Protesters broke in and sat in the bank lobby, singing, We Shall Not Be Moved. The protests carried on for months, and numerous CORE leaders were arrested for breaking court injunctions. A vacuum soon developed as the leadership of CORE was carried off during these protests. Because his overtime at McDonald had ceased, Percy Green stepped in and began to organize the picket lines and was soon made the employment chairman of CORE 
in late 1963. His employment committee quickly grew and began attracting individuals who wanted to take more direct, nonviolent actions to press the movement further. Eventually, the group decided to form a completely new organization, led by Percy Green himself, called Action. Action wanted to do something dramatic, and they soon embarked on the idea that they would target St. Louis's Gateway Arch on July the 14th, 1964. For those who have never been to St. Louis, you really can't miss the Arch Monument. It's an enormous 650-foot arch of stainless steel which hovers over the city like an iron halo. But why pick the arch of all things? Well, at the time, the arch was still under construction, and there was serious controversy that no African-American workers or contractors had been hired to build it. Percy Green and some other group members met with a lead contractor and demanded they bring up the African-American workforce from 0 to 10% in 10 days or risk protests. When the contractor refused to comply, Action and Corps then utilized the element of surprise and staged a decoy picket line at lunchtime at the old courthouse. While the city's security and media focused on the decoy protest, Percy Green and another activist, Richard Daly, snuck onto the arch grounds and climbed 125 feet up the monument on a construction ladder. Pandemonium erupted when the protesters at the old courthouse announced what had really happened and pulled out telescopes to view the arch. News agencies and police swarmed over the gateway arch grounds. Green and Daly just dangled their legs over the sides of the ladder and refused to come down, with police shouting below. Percy Green said he'd stay up there until he starved to death, but at around 5.30 p.m. or so, he and Daly finally decided to come down because Green needed to go to McDonald to work. But that didn't happen, because as soon as Percy Green's feet hit the ground, he was immediately arrested and carried limply away to a waiting police vehicle. Charges against Percy Green would later be dropped in September, on condition he agreed to remain as far away as possible from the Gateway Arch. As a result of the protest, he became a well-known activist. McDonald management also took notice. One day, Percy Green was approached by two individuals from the company's personnel department who were concerned his activities might impact the company. Green reassured them that he never told the police or the press where he worked, and he did not expect his activities to impact his work time. Things seemed to settle down, but then, on August the 28th, 1964, about a month and a half after the Arch protest, Percy Green was suddenly laid off as part of a so-called reduction in force with eight other technicians. It was his birthday. Now, Percy Green had a lot of reasons to find the layoff a little suspicious. The layoff occurred very soon after the Gateway Arch protest and his growing civil rights activism. Fourteen white employees with less seniority were retained while he was let go. He had a good work record. There had also been those comments from the personnel department. But Green was left with little recourse at the time. While Title VII of the Civil Rights Act was passed on July 2, 1964, it would not become actionable for a year. Without legal options, Percy Green resorted to extrajudicial self-help. To persuade his employer McDonnell to rehire him, he began writing letters and contacting numerous agencies, like the President's Commission on Civil Rights, the Justice Department, the Department of the Navy, the Defense Department, and so on, basically carpet-bombing the company with grievance claims. Then, he turned action and core loose on McDonnell and started picketing, including demonstrating at the home of James F. McDonnell, the chairman of the board of the company. No doubt, this began to get the company's attention. In October 1964, all these actions culminated 
in a Stalin protest. The plan for the protest was simple. Five teams, each consisting of four cars each, would tie up the main access roads to McDonald's plant at the heaviest time of morning rush hour. Teams were instructed to stop their cars, turn off the engine, pull the emergency brake, raise the windows, lock the doors, and remain in place until further notice. Although the plan was ultimately to stop traffic for an hour, it really didn't work that well. Traffic could still get through in places, and Percy Green's car was quickly towed away by the police. He was ultimately arrested, fined $50, and pled guilty to obstructing traffic, a misdemeanor. The whole thing lasted 10 minutes. Now, the company wasn't showing signs of giving in, and picketing continued into the next year. Throughout the protests, Percy Green kept one eye on the clock, waiting for the day Title VII would finally become effective in July 1965. On July the 2nd, the exact day Title VII became actionable, he sent a notice letter to McDonnell demanding an end to overt discriminatory practices and insisted the company hire 3,400 African Americans. He also staged a new demonstration at McDonnell. This time, though, things began to get a little out of hand. A chain and padlock was placed on the front door of a building housing McDonnell employees to prevent them from leaving. Although Green was present at the demonstration, it remains unclear how, or when, the lock actually got on there. Green denied that he ever did it. Although he was told that someone planned to lock the door, he did not know it happened until after it had actually occurred. It really didn't make much of a difference, though, because in McDonald's eyes, he was responsible for it. A few weeks after the lock-in protest, Percy Green discovered McDonald had posted his old position in the St. Louis Post newspaper. Perfect, he probably thought. Now they can either hire me back or face a lawsuit for discrimination under Title VII. He immediately returned to the company the next day and applied in person. He later claimed a detective was sent to monitor him, and that when he pressed to speak to a superior officer in the employment division, he was told to leave. Percy Green's application was immediately rejected. The company would later say they refused to rehire him, not because of his civil rights work, but because he had engaged in illegal activities against the company, including the stall-in and the lock-in protest. At any rate, now armed with an adverse action to support a claim under Title VII, Percy Green filed a charge of discrimination with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission on September the 14th, 1965, alleging McDonald discriminated against him because of his race and persistent involvement in the civil rights movement. The EEOC investigated the case for over a year and a half until May 8, 1967. At that time, it determined reasonable cause existed to believe McDonald unlawfully retaliated against Green due to his civil rights activities. Critically for the case, though, it did not make a finding on his discrimination claim. Attempts to conciliate the case at the EEOC broke down, and Percy Green was given permission to file his lawsuit in federal court. To assist him with this, he hired a well-respected Jewish attorney, Louis Gilden. Gilden had been born in Cherbourg, France in 1925, but had immigrated to the United States when he was two years old. Graduating from Washington University School of Law in 1949, he focused his career on civil rights cases and would gain recognition for defending conscientious objectors during the Vietnam War, including one individual who was accused of burning down Washington University's ROTC building. The EEOC's failure to find reasonable cause on the discrimination claim created a problem for Lewis Gilden. At the time, the agency was brand new and its powers were pretty unclear. The agency was initially run by a skeleton staff which could barely keep the lights on. Was it just a rest area for cases before moving to federal court, 
or was it meant to be the primary place for employment discrimination litigation? People were unsure. There was confusion whether a finding of reasonable cause by the EEOC was necessary to bring a claim in federal court. So on April the 15th, 1968, when Gildan filed a lawsuit on Percy Green's behalf in the Eastern District of Missouri, he alleged McDonald discriminated against him by denying him employment because of his involvement in civil rights activities. It was just vague enough to hopefully cover both discrimination and retaliation claims. For its defense, McDonald contacted its corporate attorneys at Bryan Cave, McFeeters, and McRoberts. Founded in 1873 in downtown St. Louis, today it is an international law firm with over 1,600 attorneys. In the 1950s and 60s, though, it was still a smaller, regional firm with strong community connections in St. Louis. A team of attorneys would handle the case, including R.H. McRoberts, Verrill Riddle, and Thomas Walsh, a young associate who had just graduated St. Louis University three years before. Verrill Riddle, who ended up leading the case on appeal, was a graduate of Washington University, just like Lewis Gilden. He was a tenacious lawyer and something of a cloak-and-dagger figure who had worked in military intelligence during World War II, including going undercover in New York Harbor to gather information about enemy agents. He also had previously received an appointment by President Lyndon Johnson to work as a U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of Missouri. Things did not go well for Percy Green early in the case. Lewis Gilden's initial plan was to present substantial statistical evidence that McDonnell underemployed African Americans in its workforce. He began a massive discovery campaign and issued interrogatories requesting information detailing nearly eight years of information regarding the composition of McDonnell's workforce. The discovery requests were massive and sought information encompassing 662,000 applications for employment as well as 110,000 employment records. Verrill Riddle estimated it would take three people working full-time three to six months just to compile this information. As you'd expect, he and the defense team vigorously objected to these requests and argued that they were overly burdensome and completely irrelevant to Percy Green's alleged claims. They claimed that Percy Green had alleged only retaliation based on civil rights activities, not discrimination based on race. There was no reason to dig into the racial composition of the workforce for a retaliation claim. The company sought protection from the court. The judge assigned to hear the lawsuit was District Judge James Hargrove Meredith. Born immediately at the start of the First World War in 1914, he received his law degree from the University of Missouri in 1937. He went on to serve as a special agent for the FBI and the Naval Reserve during World War II, before becoming a statewide campaign coordinator and serving as a legal secretary for the governor of Missouri. His work seemed to impress President John F. Kennedy because he nominated him to the bench on March 5, 1962. Judge Meredith agreed with McDonnell that the discovery requests were excessive and refused to grant Percy Green unlimited access to McDonnell's personnel records. After losing the discovery order, Lewis Gilden sensed a weak spot in his pleadings, so in March 1969, he attempted to amend Percy Green's complaint to include a more express claim for discrimination based on race. McDonnell immediately objected to the amendment the next day. They now argued that the court lacked jurisdiction to hear the race discrimination claim entirely because the EEOC had not found reasonable cause for discrimination. As I said earlier, this punctilio of procedure was pretty uncharted at the time, with little to go on but a cryptic legislative record, the court sided with McDonnell and struck Percy Green's discrimination claim because the EEOC had not found reasonable cause on it, 
This left only the retaliation claim. The parties proceeded to a bench trial on January the 12th, 1970. No jury was involved, and Judge Meredith decided matters of both fact and law. The trial lasted four days. Although the race discrimination claim had been officially stricken, it refused to die, and lived on in the background as a kind of zombie claim. Lewis Gilden presented testimony about Percy Green's employment background with McDonnell, his civil rights activities, his 1964 layoff, and his qualifications compared to white employees who had been retained. McDonald's counsel now had the chance to tell their side of the story. They argued that there was nothing fishy about either the layoff or the refusal to rehire Green. Instead, the layoff was the result of Percy Green's own career decisions. In 1962, he had approached a supervisor about transferring from a unionized to non-unionized position working in the Electronic Equipment Division for the Gemini program, NASA's second human spaceflight mission. Obviously, this space mission would not last forever. After Green was cautioned that transferring out of the Union ran a greater danger of layoff, he initially decided not to transfer. But in 1963, Percy Green reapplied for the program. Although he was warned again about the increased danger for layoff, he elected to take the job anyway, knowing those risks. Layoffs began in 1964, as could be expected, but Green was initially retained. Then, in August 1964, because of reduced manpower needs for the Gemini simulator program, it became obvious there were just too many technicians. Some of the surplus employees just had to go. The company ended up crafting a standardized rating system it nicknamed the Totem Pole. Based on measurements like ability, performance, potential, and other non-discriminatory elements, Green was selected for layoff with eight other white individuals, one of which was actually higher up than him on the totem pole. Efforts were made to relocate these men before the layoff. Percy Green was even asked whether he wanted to take a test for higher job classifications, but he had refused. The company admitted Percy Green was a good employee and that he might have been rehired, but his protesting just went too far. The company's director of personnel services, C.L. Windsor, was brought to the stand. He testified that Percy Green's rehire application was rejected on the spot because of his illegal participation in the stall-in and the lock-in. The company's vice president of personnel was also brought in. He testified that Green disqualified himself from employment by protesting activities he characterized as, quote, an overt act to disrupt the normal activities of our company tantamount to sabotaging the plant, end quote. Lewis Gilden tried his best to poke holes in this narrative. McDonald's discouragement of Percy Green's transfer in 1962 had not been altruistic. Far from it. The company was trying to prevent him from advancing to the higher positions. As evidence, he pointed to another white employee who later gained promotion to a higher position after making such a transfer. When Green was later finally allowed to transfer to the research department, he also encountered discriminatory headwinds. Percy Green found himself the only black man among 100 other technicians, he was not given a tour or properly trained, as was customary for white employees, and he received negative comments about the clothes that he wore. There were also issues with the so-called totem pole. I mean, what kind of term is that anyway? An engineer was brought in who expressed his opinion that it did not accurately track its intended metrics. At least one other employee, a white man, should have been lower than green, but was actually placed above him on the totem pole. Additionally, 14 other people below Green on the totem pole were retained, 11 of which were not even considered for layoff. 
As for refusing to rehire Percy Green because of the lock-in, that was clearly a sham. No one even knew who did that. Why was the company blaming Percy Green for something he didn't do? It looked like the company was trying to create a reason to reject him. Both sides rested their cases, and Judge Meredith left to deliberate. At the last minute, Lewis Gilden made one final gamble to resurrect the discrimination claim. In his post-trial brief, for the first time since the trial began, he attempted to ground the layoff discrimination claim in a completely new statute, Section 1981 of the Civil Rights Act of 1866. Passed after the Civil War, the statute prohibited discrimination on the basis of race and was beginning to be applied in employment contexts. It didn't matter, though. Judge Meredith issued his decision on December the 25th, 1970. Percy Green's case lost on every front. Although it initially looked like a complete disaster, as we've learned in our other cases, in the legal world, sometimes a loss is not always a loss. Sometimes, if the judge steps out too far, or if the final judgment is messy enough, an appeal becomes possible, and the lawsuit can live another day. So what was Judge Meredith's fatal mistake? Well, he took the bait on Percy Green's Section 1981 discrimination claim. There was no reason to do this. Percy Green had failed to include this claim until the last minute in the case. The court had also dismissed the discrimination claim based on Title VII over a year before. Remember, the court did that because the EEOC hadn't found reasonable cause on the discrimination claim. Thus, there was no discrimination claim to review. None. But Judge Meredith no doubt wanted to cover his bases for review, so he considered the issue, and his opinion would set off a chain reaction which would ultimately lead to the Supreme Court. Judge Meredith found plaintiff's Section 1981 discrimination claim based on the 1964 layoff was time-barred and dismissed it. This decision was correct and would not be reversed down the road. But then he turned his attention to the 1965 failure-to-hire claim, here, he jumbled the retaliation claim and the discrimination claim together, and noted that his consideration of the retaliation claim would also dispose of any remaining discrimination claim under Section 1981. It was just a confusing standard. Next, the court found that conduct like the Stalin and Lockin protests created dangerous situations to other employees and the public, and such conduct was not protected by Title VII. Protests had to be kept within reasonable limits, and impeding the flow of traffic and locking doors exceeded those limits. The fact that no personal injury or property damage occurred was immaterial, since it was only police involvement which removed the dangerous conditions. The court concluded by noting, quote, The testimony and evidence before the court fails to establish that defendants' refusal to rehire plaintiff resulted from racial prejudice or plaintiff's legitimate civil rights activities. It seems clear from the record that defendants' reasons for refusing to rehire the plaintiff were motivated solely and simply by the plaintiff's participation in the stall-in and the lock-in demonstrations. The burden of proving other reasons was on plaintiff, unquote. Judgment was entered for McDonnell, and the case was dismissed with prejudice. Lewis Gilden made immediate plans to appeal to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. Using his connections in the civil rights community, he reached out to the NAACP's Legal Defense Fund and its director counsel, Jack Greenberg. If you can recall from our last episode a few months ago, Jack Greenberg took over the LDF from the Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall in 1961 and launched a wide-sweeping anti-discrimination campaign which culminated in Griggs v. Duke Power Company 
and the disparate impact theory. If anyone could salvage Percy Green's case, the NAACP and their brain trust could. Greenberg, and a number of other attorneys who had worked on the Griggs case, were brought in to assist writing Percy Green's appellate brief. It felt like the band was getting back together again. Gildan and the LDF quickly came up with two major lines of attack. First, they argued that the lock-in and the Stalin protests were legitimate protected activities under Title VII, and that Percy Green's retaliation claim should not have been dismissed. Judge Meredith was really overreacting by claiming that these protests exceeded reasonable limits. I mean, it's not like the Stalin and the lock-in protests caused McDonald to turn into a Thunderdome from the Mad Max movies. Far from it, the Stalin was a non-violent civil rights protest. It hadn't even worked and lasted 10 minutes. As for the lock-in, Percy Green didn't even do that. That was a fake reason for the decision, wasn't it? The second major argument that the LDF and Lewis Gilden wanted to make was that the court had erred in dismissing the Title VII discrimination claim because it did not receive a reasonable cause finding from the EEOC. A significant trend of decisional law had developed which reached the opposite conclusion from the court. Judge Meredith's initial order striking the Title VII discrimination claim was clearly improper, and it had messed up the entire case. On appeal, Percy Green started coming into some luck. He received two favorable judges on his appellate panel. One appellate judge, Donald Lay, made no secret of his liberal view of civil rights. He often arranged for professors and lawyers to give presentations on civil rights at the Eighth Circuit's judicial conferences. Nominated at age 39 by President Lyndon Johnson in 1966, he was the second youngest federal appellate judge appointed at that time. Another justice, Myron Bright, had received his law degree from the University of Minnesota and had acted as an Air Force captain during World War II. He was another appointment made by President Johnson and would make several groundbreaking decisions in civil rights law. While Judge Lay may have been one of the youngest justices, Judge Bright would end up being one of the oldest and would serve on the bench until 2016 and he was 97 years old. Both judges firmly believed that the case presented many challenges, especially what standard of proof to employ. Judge Lay and Judge Bright began conferring over the telephone about the issue of pretext and whether McDonald's reasons for its employment decisions were credible or not. They couldn't agree on everything, and the parties waited close to a year for the decision which finally came in March 1972. The opinion was both fractured and a bombshell. The case produced three separate opinions, a majority opinion from Judge Bright, a concurring opinion from Judge Lay, and a vigorous dissent from the third judge on the appeals panel, Judge Harvey Johnson. The three judges unanimously agreed that the Section 1981 layoff claim was time-barred, but splits started forming over the evidence, particularly the lock-in. Both Judge Bright and Judge Lay agreed that the record did not support the trial court's conclusion that Green actively cooperated in chaining the doors of the downtown office building. Instead, a complete stranger to the litigation had done the chaining. This stranger was mysterious, like the shooter in the grassy knoll. No one knew who he was, where he came from, or whether he even existed. It didn't make sense to blame Percy Green for that. Therefore, the court only reviewed whether the Stalin could be considered a protected activity under Title VII. Although they admitted there was little relevant authority for any position whatsoever, they could not find anything suggesting Title VII was intended to protect activities which violated the law. Erring on the side of caution, they found that illegal activities like the Stalin were not protected. 
This ruling killed a retaliation claim based on the Stalin protest. But, like a blood sacrifice, the death of the retaliation claim brought renewed life to Percy Green's discrimination claim. Both Judge Lay and Judge Bright agreed that the court had committed reversible error in striking the discrimination claim because the EEOC had not found reasonable cause. The statute did not create such a requirement. If a reasonable cause finding really was a jurisdictional requirement, surely Congress would have expressly said so in the statute. Accordingly, a plaintiff only needed to satisfy two requirements with the EEOC before bringing a claim in federal court. The plaintiff needed to file an initial claim with the EEOC and receive a notice of right to sue from it. Percy Green had satisfied these conditions, so his discrimination claim should have been allowed to proceed like everything else. Judge Meredith was flat wrong on that. McDonald's attorneys, sensing the tsunami of negative case law on this issue, tried to argue that Percy Green had not been prejudiced by the district court's decision to strike his discrimination claim early in the case. Yes, yes, it was officially struck, but the court clearly let him present evidence on it at trial and addressed the matter in his final order, in which he found that no discrimination had occurred. Judge Lay and Judge Bright were not convinced. Even though Green had been allowed to present some evidence, his hands had clearly been tied. They could not say, one way or another, whether the case had been hampered by the cloud of uncertainty created by the court's decision to strike the claim. Judge Lay finished by citing the old Hebrew expression, quote, They tie our hands and then reproach us that we do not use them, unquote. The appeals court also felt that Judge Meredith's analysis of the discrimination claim was half-hearted at best and blended the discrimination and retaliation claims together. The district court had simply assumed that since the Stalin and Lockin protests were unprotected activities, McDonald's refusal to hire Green could not be discriminatory, but this was too quick of a leap. Even if Green had participated in unprotected activities, the court still needed to examine whether discrimination occurred and whether McDonald's explanation was believable. The case needed to be sent back for a full examination of the discrimination claim. Now, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals could have stopped right there, and if it did, Verrill Riddle admitted that McDonald probably would not have appealed the case to the Supreme Court. But the appeals court didn't stop there. Oh no. Instead, Judge Bright and Judge Lay decided to issue a final section to the majority opinion, the famous, or depending on your point of view, infamous, Section 5. Section 5 was intended to guide the district court's analysis of the race discrimination claim. The court advised the district court to examine Percy Green's case in what would become the first draft of the famous McDonnell burden-shifting framework, stating, quote, When a black man demonstrates that he possesses the qualifications to fill a job opening, and that he was denied the job, we think he presents a prima facie case of racial discrimination, and that the burden passes to the employer to demonstrate a substantial relationship between the reasons offered for denying employment and the requirements of the job, unquote. McDonnell, after hearing all this, was completely shocked by this new standard. The court did not provide any statutory or case support for this test, and seemed to just pull it out of thin air. And what did the court mean by the term prima facie? What is that, Latin? That sounds pretty scary. That term meant at first appearance, and suggested that the plaintiff only needed to make a cursory showing of discrimination. To make matters worse, the framework seemed to shift the burden of proof 
onto the employer to show any employment decision was job-related. It also noted that subjective, rather than objective, evidence should be granted little weight. Did this mean the court should just disregard the testimony of its managers? It was all very confusing, but McDonald recognized that their case had been mortally wounded by this new standard of proof. If they returned to district court now, they'd certainly lose. The court had all but rejected their decision-making. The company filed a motion for rehearing, and the case appeared to be headed for en banc review, a hearing by all the Eighth Circuit judges. Had en banc review been granted, the entire order would have been vacated. Judge Lay and Judge Bright, realizing they may have pushed things a little too far with the burden-shifting analysis and wanting to avoid a challenge, quietly worked behind the scenes with other judges to craft a revised Section 5 as fast as they could. When it was released, the revised Section 5 did not seem to change the previous order in any radical sense. It removed language about the burden of proof shifting to McDonnell after the establishment of a prima facie case. However, the panel now instructed that on remand, Green should be given the opportunity to show that the reasons offered by McDonnell were pretextual, or otherwise showed the presence of racially discriminatory hiring practices. Judge Johnson filed a renewed dissent stating he could not tell what the intended effects of the changes were. To him, it looked like the majority had merely rearranged the deck chairs on the Titanic. Regardless, the changes seemed to work, because McDonald's request for en banc review was narrowly denied by a 4-4 to vote on a divided court in June 1972. Without substantial improvement to the opinion, McDonald threw the dice again. They petitioned the United States Supreme Court for review of the case in September 1972. Many in the business community had also grown concerned about the burden of proof being shifted onto employers. Justice Rehnquist's notes suggest that the vote to review the case was very close, 5-4, to four, with Justice Thurgood Marshall, the former executive director of the LDF, in the minority. Oral arguments were heard in March 1973. Farrell Riddle began by describing the factual history of the case and noted that Judge Meredith had correctly set the burden of proof from the start by requiring the plaintiff, Percy Green, to establish that the refusal to hire him was based on his race. The Eighth Circuit had turned that principle upside down. It required the plaintiff to only show a prima facie case of discrimination, and then the burden of proof improperly shifted over to McDonnell. However, the burden of proof should have always remained with the plaintiff. The court had also cast aspersions on the value of subjective evidence, which could prevent a company from testifying as to its own motivations. When Lewis Gilden rose to speak, he discussed the problems that occurred when the district court struck the discrimination claim. He was prevented from producing statistical evidence. When asked whether Percy Green disputed he had participated in the Stalin protest, Gilden said no. But Green had no other recourse, because the Civil Rights Act was not in effect at the time. He was protesting and opposing discrimination, just like the statute intended. Although he conceded that unlawful protests might not be protected under Title VII, the key issue was pretext. Did McDonnell really fail to rehire him because of that excuse, or was it all a sham? That should be the inquiry. Justice Berger, who had written the Griggs v. Duke Power Company opinion, began pushing him on the correct burden of proof and the Eighth Circuit minimizing subjective evidence with Griggs. He posed a question. Suppose, instead of having just engaged in blocking the highway, Green had thrown some dynamite at the trucks at McDonald. Would the company still have to assume the burden of showing objective evidence 
that rendered him an unsuitable employee? Gildan said a stick of dynamite seemed pretty objective to him, and he didn't read the opinion that way. But Justice Berger replied that that's just exactly the way he read it. The parties finished, and the Supreme Court left to deliberate. The court's decision-making process can be rather opaque. After oral arguments are held, the justices discuss cases in closed-door sessions with the nine members alone. No clerks or staff are allowed, and transcripts are prohibited. All we have to know what went on are the notes that they take, many of which are vaulted away and never seen again. But lucky for us, Professor Timothy Johnson at the University of Minnesota Law School is working on a project to electronically transcribe these notes, and he was kind enough to share some with me. They reveal an interesting picture, but bear in mind that the notes can be cryptic and can feel like deciphering tea leaves. Nearly everyone in the McDonald Case Conference agreed that the case needed to be affirmed in some manner. Only Chief Justice Berger appears to have been a question mark to some of the judges. Justice Marshall seemed to believe that the burden needed to be on the employee. According to Justice William Brennan's notes, Justice Lewis Powell opined that it was clear error in not allowing the discrimination claim to proceed. Maybe there was a de facto trial. If Green had gotten the discovery he needed, things might have been different, but Green didn't get the discovery he needed. However, Justice Powell totally disagreed with the first opinion written by the Eighth Circuit and the dialogue about the record. Justice Stewart also agreed that the first decision of the Eighth Circuit was wrong. Justice Byron White also wanted to make it clear that employers could discharge employees even when the reason did not reflect on their ability to do the job. But regardless, he thought Green was entitled to have a trial on whether he was fired because he was black or because of his civil rights activities. Justice Lewis Powell would end up being assigned to write the unanimous opinion, and he would need to boil down all of these positions into a single order that everyone could agree with. Justice Powell was known as a conservative Virginia gentleman and had been a successful corporate attorney before being nominated to the bench in 1971. He had been nominated the same day as William Rehnquist, but initially he had reservations with joining the Supreme Court because he thought justices made too little money. He also thought that he would lack experience on key legal areas. He began serving in 1972, and this was his first major employment law case. He was very focused in oral arguments, and his personal notes showed that he thought it was vital to understand exactly what the Eighth Circuit majority had held. He appears to have hoped that Verrill Riddle would clear up some of the points made by Gildan during oral arguments, but he jotted down that his rebuttal contained nothing helpful in his notes. While this is pretty unfair to Mr. Riddle, it shows that judges do still care about the rebuttal and oral arguments. Anyway, Justice Powell finally released his unanimous opinion on May the 14th, 1973. It would define employment law and the standard of proof for discrimination cases for the next 50 years. Justice Powell began by stating that the case raised significant issues as to the proper order and nature of proof under Title VII. He immediately disposed of the side issues. He agreed with the Court of Appeals that the discrimination claim should not have been stricken. Title VII did not require a plaintiff to first receive a probable cause finding from the EEOC. Additionally, Percy Green should have received the right to prepare his case and plan the strategy of trial with the knowledge that his discrimination claim was properly before the court. Percy Green's case would be remanded and it would receive another trial. The court then turned to the critical issue everyone was waiting on, 
the order and allocation of proof. Justice Powell found there was a notable lack of harmony from the three competing opinions below. Rather than reinvent the wheel, though, he reorganized the standard of proof from Section 5 of the Eighth Circuit Opinion into a three-step tango, I mean test. Forgive me, as you can see, the dance analogies are still getting to me. Anyway, the new test would attempt to fairly distribute each party's burdens. During the first step of the test, the plaintiff employee would carry the initial burden of establishing a prima facie case of racial discrimination. In the discriminatory hiring context, the employee would need to show four things. That he belonged to a racial minority group, that he applied for and was qualified for a job for which the employer was seeking applicants, that despite his qualifications, he was rejected by the employer, and finally, that after his rejection, the position remained open and the employer continued to seek applicants from persons with similar qualifications. Simple enough, right? The burden would then shift to the employer. During the second step of the test, the employer needed to articulate a legitimate, non-discriminatory reason for the employment decision. Once the first two steps were satisfied, there would be a third and final step, the crescendo. The burden would shift back to the employee, and then the employee would be afforded a fair opportunity to show that the employer's stated reason was in fact pretext for discrimination. This was a critical change because it ensured that the ultimate burden of proof remained with the employee at the end of the test. In Percy Green's case, the court thought that the first two steps had been met. Percy Green had established his initial prima facie case, and McDonnell had produced a legitimate reason for not hiring him. Analogizing to cases involving unlawful union strikes, the court noted that Title VII would not protect illegal civil rights activities like the Stalin protest, nonviolent or otherwise. However, on the third step, Justice Powell directed the district court to take a closer look and see whether the Stalin protest was in fact the real reason for the failure to rehire Green. He also explained the kinds of evidence that might help at the third stage of the test. Comparator evidence of white employees who were treated differently. Statistics, or evidence that the explanation provided by the employer was false. If Percy Green was able to demonstrate McDonald's reason for refusing to employ him as pretext or discriminatory, the lower court should rule in his favor. Armed with a new, albeit weakened, standard of proof, Percy Green and Lewis Gilden breathed a sigh of relief. They would get a second bite at the apple now. They began making immediate plans for retrial with District Judge Meredith. But just as the rain seemed to be clearing, it began to storm again. According to an account by Judge Lay, before the second trial could even begin, a cross was burned on Judge Meredith's lawn one night in a horrific act of judicial intimidation. Lewis Gilden, who had carried the case for so many years, finally had enough and felt that he needed to recuse himself. Perhaps fresh eyes could help see the case in a way he couldn't. Percy Green engaged new counsel, Charles Oldham, a longtime member of Corps who had been arrested in the 1963 Jefferson Bank protests and who had represented dozens of clients in discrimination cases. Although Judge Lay thought Judge Meredith probably should have recused himself after the cross-burning incident, Judge Meredith dug in his heels and would not be moved. He wasn't going anywhere. The retrial commenced on February the 26th, 1975. But it was no use. Percy Green lost again. Judge Meredith ultimately found 
that he had failed to pass the third step of the burden-shifting framework. He could not establish any employment decision made by McDonnell was pretextual. Most of the facts did not change during retrial, but there were a few surprises. The magic lock came back into the mix again. McDonnell managed to dig up an alleged eyewitness who personally saw and testified about the fact that he saw Percy Green chaining the building in the lock-in incident. What I want to know is where was this guy 10 years ago? At any rate, the court also looked at statistics, but it found them inconclusive. McDonnell had dramatically increased African-American employment after Title VII had passed, which increased the percentages of African-Americans employed at their facilities. Green then attempted to present figures showing non-whites were disciplined more than whites from 1946 to 1966, but the court found these figures incomplete because McDonnell had a practice of destroying disciplinary records every three years, and employees could ask for disciplinary records to be expunged every three years. Finally, comparator evidence was also presented to the court. In 1965, 1967, and 1972, the company had not disciplined white union employees who had been involved in protests and stall-ins. But these actions were not given weight because many races had participated in the protests and discipline was not meted out as part of a union negotiation. The situation just did not look similar enough to Percy Green's case. In the end, the court found that the evidence showed the real reason McDonnell refused to rehire Percy Green was because of his illegal activities. The case was dismissed now for a second time. Another appeal was made to the Eighth Circuit on January the 28th, 1976, but the case was affirmed. The lawsuit was now finally, officially, over. It feels a little anticlimactic, doesn't it? The whole case had begun at the Gateway Arch protest in 1964 and lasted almost 12 years. Although Percy Green ultimately lost due to the framework he helped create, one is left to wonder, did he really lose his lawsuit? His case is now one of the cornerstones of employment law. His legal battle allowed the courts to sharpen their understanding of circumstantial evidence and the correct order of proof in discrimination cases. Although the doors of the courthouse finally shut on Percy Green, his litigation in St. Louis opened a new gateway through which hundreds of thousands of plaintiffs have walked since that time. When it was first released, the McDonnell burden-shifting framework was received as a gift to disparate treatment law. The standard was elegant, tidy, and cost-effective. For the first time, the Supreme Court accepted that Title VII discrimination claims could be proven with circumstantial evidence. This was a big deal, which opened up the courts to employment plaintiffs with suspicious evidence, but not a smoking gun. Plaintiffs which might have lost with a more stringent test. The framework also reduced the burden on employees to initially state a claim of discrimination. Plaintiffs could now make a facial showing without having to guess at the employer's ultimate motivations. The test also tied the employer down somewhat by requiring it to justify its actions, and the employer's reasoning could be rationally measured and weighed with evidence to see if it was true or not. But over time, critics have increased. They see serious flaws with the McDonnell burden-shifting framework. After all, let's not forget, its first plaintiff, Percy Green, failed to pass the test. Why is that? Well, the employer's burden to produce a legitimate, non-discriminatory reason for an employment action is pretty light under the test. One of production, not persuasion. All employers have to do is come up with some coherent reason to explain discriminatory action, and they can meet their burden. 
the Supreme Court specifically rejected the extension of Griggs and removed any requirement that the business reason be job-related or based on objective factors. Additionally, although an act may in truth be discriminatory, sometimes the evidence is just not there to prove it. There may be a lack of comparators, or the company's alleged non-discriminatory reason, although made up after the fact, may actually be true. A party who has the final burden of proof, and who lacks evidence of disparate treatment or pretext, is going to lose in court. The framework has also been criticized because it has become so universal. It is now used in numerous employment statutes and in contexts where it might not make as much sense. The decision to eliminate nonviolent but illegal civil rights activities also cut down on retaliation protection in an era where some companies did not want to comply with Title VII. These criticisms are all worth consideration. But while I don't think we should glorify the McDonnell burden-shifting framework as the optimal method of proof, or use it for every case, it is more than the Frankenstein monster its critics sometimes make it out to be. As a straightforward way to test the reasons for employment decisions and focus the frame of debate, it provides a useful tool many plaintiffs continue to successfully use. It has also had a profound effect on American companies by framing the parameters of how they do business. McDonald placed new burdens on employers. They now needed to be ready to justify each of their personnel decisions under the test with non-discriminatory reasons. As a practical matter, companies now needed to make decisions which were both consistent and rationally based. Over time, these restrictions have required more attentive human resources decision-making in hiring, firing, and promotions. The case fundamentally changed the workplace and the relationship between employers and employees. But what of Percy Green? What happened to him? Well, his life went on after the case. He continued his civil rights and civil disobedience activities, organizing protests as a social activist in the St. Louis area. He received his Master's of Social Work from Washington University in 1976. Then, in 1993, he was actually hired by St. Louis to review applicants for city contracts under an affirmative action program. It was a sign of the changing times. Last year in July, at age 83... He was invited by the Gateway Arch National Park to attend a commemoration of the 55th anniversary of his Gateway Arch climb demonstration. Rather than being arrested this time, though, he signed commemorative posters and engaged in educational programming about civil rights. There is no doubt that his sustained energy and the McDonald burden-shifting framework will continue to impact the Gateway City and America for years to come. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I will see you next time on Employment Law Legends. Mm-hmm.